Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. After the storms last night and the women's fencing that was on last night and the waffle fry induced coma on Wednesday, I wasn't sure we were going to have anybody left to worship the Lord at all. Okay, we are continuing a series of messages that I have uh, grouped under the loose heading, uh, God is building his church. And in recent weeks, the last few times I've preached, we've been uh, looking at a TV show called Homes on Homes for um, new and fresh and different ways to talk about familiar aspects of the Christian life. Uh, Not that we're trying to find any new material in the scriptures, uh, we're just looking for insightful ways to express what it is that God has told us about Uh, his work and his character and his purposes. If you're not familiar with this TV show, uh, Mike Holmes is a an extraordinary contractor and his uh, specialty is going into um, renovation disasters and uh, picking up where some other contractor got in over his head and had to quit. But before we see what we can gather from that TV show and from God's word this morning, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can gather in this place and turn to your word. Thank you that we can do this openly and freely. And thank you for uh, the time of preparation that you've given me. And I pray that these, uh, the words that I have this morning will be useful to your people and will be helpful to them to help them grow into your likeness. All else will fade as you draw near. Pray that you would be near to us in your word this morning. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Last week, we had the privilege of witnessing the baptism of Lily and Phoenix, who's probably taking communion with the band, so I won't point her out. Um, and we had a sermon from Pastor Jeff about what baptism is and what baptism is and why we do it, who it's for and how it's done and, and all that. And it was a wonderful message. I don't have anything to add to that. We saw that baptism was a picture of the gospel, specifically a picture of the start of the gospel. It's a simple but profound illustration. Christ cleanses us of sin just like taking a bath. Our sin and our old lives are dead and gone, and we've been raised in Christ to have new life. It's a symbol of repentance. The old life is gone, and the life that we now have is new in Christ. So then, if we are united to Christ in his death, and our sins have been paid for, and the power of sin is broken, and uh, repentance is happening, and we have new life, then why Why do we still sin? It's my guess that if we talked to Carl and Mary, that they would tell us that Lily did indeed sin this week. Breaking news, teenage girls are sinners. I didn't even bother to check with them because I was so certain that this was the case. Although if you wanted to come make testimony or have confession, we can make time for that later. Sooner or later, every person who is in Christ and trying to walk the Christian life will have to wrestle with the question, Why is this so difficult? Why do I still want to sin? Why doesn't the Christian life come naturally? Why is forsaking the wrong and pursuing the right sometimes so unpleasant and unnatural? Bottom line, why do I still want to sin even though I know that I don't want to sin? More importantly, how can I change? How can I be different? How can I gain mastery over my sin? This message is for the believer in Christ who still struggles with sin 
in general and also with those particular sins that each of us are individually prone to. When we come to Christ for the first time, it's because we recognize that we have a sin problem and that Jesus came to save us from our sins. But not only has Jesus come to forgive us and pay the penalty for the sins of his people, but he's also liberating us from sin in this life. Jesus was not content to simply reconcile men to God and then leave us with an awareness of our sin, but powerless to overcome it. If we're going to use words that the Bible uses, which is always a good idea, God was not merely interested in our justification at the beginning of the Christian life when Jesus secures our legal standing before God. He is also interested in our sanctification, our growth in holiness, our uh, living a life that is like Jesus, following the way. It's uh, the progress that we make as God transforms us into the likeness of his son, Jesus. And thanks to the spirit, it's not just God who cares about that, but we care about that, too. The spirit opens our eyes to our sins so that we can do something about it. The sinful nature that we are born with remains with us all the way through our lives until we die. And that is why we continue to struggle with sin. But if we are to make progress in the Christian life, that we have to recognize that there is a war raging inside of us between our flesh, which still wants to sin, and the new life that we have in Christ. And this is a war that must be fought and battles that must be won. I hope you won't simply take my word for it, so please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus is one of my favorite books in the New Testament and uh, sort of flies under the radar in church world. It's at the end of all the books that start with T and before the book of Hebrews. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, it is on page 998. We'll be in chapter 2 and looking at verses 11 through 14. There's going to be other scriptures that we look at this morning. There's nothing like looking with your own eyes at your own copy of the scriptures. So if you've got yours, get it out. If you don't have yours, grab one while I'm not looking. I'm going to be looking at my Bible here for a moment. So this is your chance. Chapter 2, verse 11 of the book of Titus. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, not meaning every individual, but context verses one through 10 men and women, old and young, rich and poor. Grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, an excellent verse on the deity of Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Uh, we talk about the three stages of salvation and Paul gets them all out of order. I don't know what he was thinking, but you can see in verse 14 that we have justification when uh, this is Christ's finished work on the cross. Paul says he gave himself for us. That was to redeem us from sin and also to purify us. God is gathering a people. We say that God is building his church and this is part of where that comes from. God is gathering a people who are zealous for good works. Above that, in verse 13, we see that we are waiting. This is the third and final stage of salvation when we are waiting, that's eagerly longing and expecting the second coming of Christ, the appearing of the glory of Christ, what he calls our blessed hope. That uh, Lots more on that later in verse 12. Look and see the word is training, the second stage of salvation. 
He is training us. You watch the Olympics for 30 seconds, you're going to hear them talk about training. These athletes, they want to get on the podium, they train. They want to please their coach and their sponsors, so they train. You want to get your face on a box of Wheaties, you have to train. If you want to live the Christian life the way God would have you to, he is going to put you in training. This word means the slow, gradual, patient, step-by-step education and instruction that's given to a child. God starts us off in the preschool of holiness, and then before you know it, we're in elementary school lessons, and then he's got you in the graduate school of sanctification, and you're teaching others how to come along and follow Christ. Now, what events are we training for? He gives us a twofold direction to go, something forsaken and something pursued. He's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the sin that we are to avoid, and what we're moving forward towards, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. There's sin to be abandoned, and there's righteousness to be cultivated. Those are two sides of the same coin. Now, let's uh, check in with Mike Holmes. Picture this scenario. He has started a work, and he's gone into this home, and uh, he... Uh, it's a mess, you know, a kitchen where you can't cook and a bathroom where you can't bathe and a basement that's more like a dungeon than anything else. And uh, he enters this scene of residential wreckage and he begins transforming it into the perfect picture of homeowner heaven. The work has begun. There's no turning back. Once he takes on a project, he finishes it because that's the sort of guy that he is. But there's a long journey between the beginning and the end. And there's a lot of obstacles along the way. There's all sorts of crazy things that he might find inside somebody's homes. He goes into an old house and very often he'll find asbestos insulation and lead pipes. Go into a house of any age and you might find mold. He's always trying to drive home the point that water is trying to get into your house. When you have warm air that meets cold air, you get condensation that leads to standing water. And when water makes contact with organic material like wood and drywall, then you have the conditions for mold. So as soon as they uh, suspect that they're dealing with a hazmat situation, then the masks come out and uh, they open everything carefully and they expose everything and then they leave. They shut down so that the, the guys in spacesuits can come in and clean everything up and they can't do any more work until the mitigation and abatement is complete. You can't just paint over mold and you aren't allowed to ignore lead pipes and you're not allowed to board over asbestos. You can't just pretend that it's not there. The junk has to be removed from the house. These are substances that will poison and sicken and ruin the health of anybody that tries to live in that house, no matter how beautiful it appears on the surface. There's an all-out war that is waged against these contaminants so that the house can be a healthy place to live. And they fight until the battle is won. I'm always looking for an amusing illustration to drive home the point. It did not take me long to figure out that there are no jokes about chronic exposure to asbestos, lead, and mold. Did you hear the one about the guy with mesothelioma? No, you did not. And I didn't either. It's not a laughing matter. There's nothing in that category. And in a house, you can never assume that, oh, it's just a little bit of mold. No big deal. It doesn't matter. In your soul. You can never assume it's just a little sin. There's no such thing as just a little bit of sin. Left unchecked, sin will strangle and poison and ruin your life. There were uh, heaps and heaps of scriptures on this. Many of them are in your bulletin. Uh, Just a few of the favorites made it into the sermon itself. You guys go to Romans 8. I will join you there in a moment. I'm on my way to 1 Peter chapter 2. You guys are going to Romans 8. Don't get distracted. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, 
abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There is a war being waged inside your soul, and it would be good if you were aware of that so you don't find yourself on the losing side. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 says, let not sin reign in your mortal body. That's reign with a G, govern, rule, dominate. Don't let sin get the ascendancy in your soul to make you obey its passions. Whether you like it or not, you are already at war. If you are at peace with your sin, then you have made yourself God's enemy. And if in Christ you have peace with God, then you are at war with sin. Sin is your enemy and wants to continue to rule in your life. But sin's rule no longer needs to go unchallenged. In Romans 8, we're heading towards verse 13. Could have probably preached this whole message from the book of Romans, but it would have been almost too easy. Chapters 1 through 3, you're a sinner, you need Christ. Chapter 4, you can have salvation through faith in Christ. Chapter 5, there is life in Christ. Uh, and in chapter 6, that's because uh, through his death and resurrection, sin's power has been broken. But chapter 7, you still live in the body, so you still have sinful desires, which brings us to chapter 8. Life in the Spirit is the chapter heading that uh, is in my Bible. Look closely with your own eyes and your own Bible at verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's living according to the sinful nature with which we are all born. But, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We will spend the rest of our time this morning unpacking what do we mean by put to death by the Spirit. By the Spirit, you put to death. You are putting to death by the Spirit. This is something that depends on you, and it depends on God. That means I have to make something exceedingly clear. We are talking about a part of the Christian life that depends on a cooperative effort between you and God. That means we are talking about sanctification, not justification. When God saves us and redeems us and forgives us and makes us right with Him, that beginning of the Christian life, conversion, that is a work of God. And that is according to his mercy and not out of anything that I did. To say that I had to do something to get salvation is legalism. Obeying some set of commands in order to get salvation or to merit salvation. And we hate that. But I can confidently stand up here and say that waging war against your sin is something you have to do. Because we can be clear that we don't have to in order to get salvation we have to for our health and safety in the Christian life. We can hate legalism so badly that whenever, whenever somebody says, you have to do this or you have to do that, we say, hey, 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 stop right there. I'm an American. You can't tell me to do anything. That's legalism. Well, I'm standing up here and saying, I hope you understand what I'm saying. You have to do this. If there's sin in your life, you have to be rid of it. Not so that you can get saved, not so that you can stay saved, but because we are saved. First stuff, that's God's work. But growing in godliness and continuing in the Christian life is a cooperative endeavor between God and us. Paul says it depends on you and it depends on God. You put to death by the Spirit. There is a, a special word that we use for this in church world. I've already tested your patience with a couple of $5 words that are already used in Scripture, like justification and sanctification. If the Bible uses a word, then we should not be afraid to learn it and know it and use it. Uh, but there is a word that used to appear in English Bibles that doesn't anymore because it's passed out of common usage. And the word is 
mortify, where our Bibles will say put to death in Romans 8 and in Colossians 3, an older version will say mortify. And so this part of the Christian life has come to be known as mortification. And I tell that to you because it might be useful for you to know that word in case you ever come across it in a book or on the radio, or if you ever have a heap of tiles to get rid of in words with friends, mortification. There you go. It, uh, the, the root of the word is mort, which means death, as in I was mortified when Brianna said that thing, I wanted to die of embarrassment. Or other words like mortician, mortuary, immortal, and of course, Voldemort, which means flight of death. There you go. If you, uh, back to work, if we read the scriptures that are in the bulletin, you will eventually notice that something keeps popping up over and over again. In Titus 2, and Romans 8, and Colossians 3, and 1 John 3, all these scriptures that talk about the cooperative nature of sanctification, God and us working together, each of those scriptures also mentions the second coming of Christ. And I did not see that coming when I started my studies this week. But uh, once I thought about it, I can see how it would make a lot of sense. Keeping our eyes on the the ultimate prize and uh, our focus on what is coming can give us great strength and encouragement and motivation for the work that we have at hand. The Olympian embraces the training to get to the podium. Mike Holmes will continually remind the homeowner of, you know, yeah, we found mold and asbestos and, and junk in your house. And we're shut down until uh, the moon men can suck it out with their giant vacuum truck. But don't forget what we're working towards. This house is going to be beautiful and it's going to be healthy and you're going to be able to live in it. But we have to get the junk out first. It's the same with us. When we focus on the fact that our Savior is coming and he'll be coming in glory, then that gives us great motivation to uh, be diligent and faithful to purify ourselves from every sin. Jesus himself did this. He had no sin, so he never had to mortify sin in his own soul. But he did have that night in the garden where he had to face the reality of carrying our sin to the cross. The author of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the author. He started it, and he's the perfecter. He's training us in righteousness. He's making us complete. Who, for the joy set before him, he was looking ahead at what was going to come after the trial of the cross. For the joy set before him, endured the cross. There is that uh, cooperative aspect at work again. We set our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. But we don't have to wait until the day of glory or the day of our death to enjoy the benefits of sanctification. There are benefits in the here and now. One of the benefits of preaching sequential messages is that I have the privilege in one message of uh, cleaning up loose ends that I left accidentally in the previous message. Last time, everything looked good on paper, but it ended up being a little out of whack. We spent a lot of time talking about the cost of discipleship and a relatively small amount of time talking about the benefits of discipleship. And so I get to clean that up a little bit this week. There are benefits in the present for putting sin to death and waging war against your sin. Uh, Wayne Grudem wrote a book on theology. I consult it for every sermon that I do. He had a list of 11 motivations and benefits that he found in the scriptures, it's not like, oh, Wayne Grudem top ten list. It's you know, things that he found in the scripture. Benefits in the here and now of putting sin to death. Don't try to write these down. I can put this on the website for you. They'll go quickly. First, one of the benefits of putting sin to death is that it is an expression of our love for God. There's, uh, 
we have love for the Father because of what he's done for us, and so we want to respond in obedience rather than defiance. Second, keeping a clean conscience. There's nothing quite so burdensome as a guilty conscience, and ongoing sin will only add to that load. Third, being useful for his work. Ongoing sin in your life will hinder and compromise your ministry effectiveness. Fourth, being an effective witness to unbelievers who can observe the changes that God is making in your life, and that can be a way that God uses them to draw him to himself. Fifth, receiving blessing from God, whose pattern in general is to smile on obedience and when met with disobedience to provide negative reinforcement. Uh, I've lost count. One, two, three, four, five, six. Avoiding, displeasing, and disappointing our Heavenly Father. God has a relationship with us as a father to beloved children, and when we commit ongoing sin and live in ongoing sin, it disrupts and disappoints that relationship that we have with him. Uh, Seven, seeking greater heavenly rewards. We talked about that back in the spring. Don't need to labor too long on that. Eighth, walking more deeply and intimately with God, because whenever you have a relationship in which there is sin, there's uh, damage done to the fabric of that relationship, just like in our marriages and in our relationships here, so it is with our relationship with God. Ninth, allowing others to glorify God when they see our growth in godliness and our changed lives. John wrote in his third letter that he has no greater joy than to hear that his children are walking in the truth. Now, it's not his children like Kid City children, that's children that he's discipled. And there's nothing like um, the people that you have cared for and invested in growing in godliness. It's a great cause for rejoicing. Tenth, desiring the benefits of peace and joy that come from a godly life. Because freedom from sin brings harmony to relationships with God and with others. Eleventh, desiring to follow God's commands because they are right. Psalm 119, oh how I love your law. Why do we love God's law? Because it's God's, and it comes from God, and it's what he wants us to know about him, and it's a reflection of his character, and, and bringing our lives into alignment with what he tells us to do is good and right in its, in its own sake, because it's a reflection of God's character. So we have plenty of instruction on what we are to do and why we are to do it, but how about we spend some time talking about the how. How is this supposed to happen? Do we have any scriptures on that? I confess... During my studies, I was mildly disappointed with the answer that I found. I could feel myself wanting to find some sort of silver bullet that was going to make this easy, even though I knew better. Have I lost my batteries? No, maybe not. Okay. Let me know if there's any trouble. Sort of wave at me if you stop being able to hear me. Or if you're glad that you can't hear me, then just pretend like you can still hear me. That that works too. I did not expect that putting sin to death in my soul was going to be quick or easy or pleasant. I managed to put my backyard to death without any effort whatsoever, but I did expect that sin was going to be a little bit more resilient than my weed collection. Let me quote once more from Wayne Grudem, just so you can hear it from somebody else and not from me. The New Testament does not suggest any shortcuts by which we can grow in sanctification, but simply encourages us repeatedly to give ourselves to the old-fashioned, time-honored means of Bible reading and meditation, prayer, worship, witnessing, Christian fellowship, self-discipline, and self-control. 
in my reflection on how to put sin to death, I was looking for some great weapon that was going to slay the dragon. I've seen three movies this summer, and they all have fantastical weapons in them. I saw Avengers, and I saw Dark Knight Rises, and uh, Madagascar 3. And the Avengers have that crazy flying aircraft carrier, and they got the guy with the hammer, the guy with the shield, the guy with the weird arrows, the, the green rage monster, Iron Man has all his bells and whistles, and the girl... They just gave her a gun. That was pretty ordinary. She got gypped, I think. Um, and Batman, he's got all his normal array of weapons, the bat bicycle and the bat helicopter, all that stuff. And thank you, Krista. Best of all was Madagascar, where the penguins built a monkey-powered airplane and a nuclear-powered van. Not nuclear, nuclear. So what are our weapons against sin? Uh, The time to think about this is now, before we find ourselves in a crisis of temptation. When you get there, you've got prayer, you've got the scripture that you've memorized and the benefit of uh, folks that you can call accountability partners. And God will not leave you without the resources that you need to uh, face that that crisis and, and have a way of escape, as he's promised us. And when he tests us, it's always for our good and never so that we will fail. But we can set ourselves up to succeed way before we get into that moment of temptation. You can build good hedges and fences and lines of protection in your life to keep you away from known dangerous situations. And that will also help set you up to succeed once you get there. As a rule, guys in general are Uh, vulnerable to temptations in the area of sexual purity and financial integrity. So simple tools like covenant eyes on your computer and financial transparency and openness with your spouse are easy things to help avoid getting into trouble that is easily avoided. I've heard that the ladies have temptations that are uh, more relational in nature from what I've been told. So ladies, be careful about the sorts of relationships that you invest in. Not every person who claims the name of Christ is going to help you grow in your walk with him. And by all means, make friendships with unbelievers, but don't kid yourself about the uh, degree of influence that that can have over your life. Men, women, and young people of all kinds are all vulnerable to things like substance abuse and appetites getting out of control and time management issues. There are good habits and easy practices, maybe not easy practices, but at least obvious practices that can help us move from having those be temptations into full-blown sin problems. It could be as easy as you don't want to smoke and drink, don't hang out in the bar, or as obvious as if you want to grow in time management, then you can make use of that calendar that's built into your phone. It's right there. Learn how to use it, and it's helped me a lot with my time management. Here's an example from my own life that I stumbled into completely by accident. Eight years ago, I was completely sedentary and eating poorly and in great quantities. That's the word. Great quantities of bad food and not doing anything about it. I knew that something needed to change because I was on the wrong track and uh, it wasn't going to change unless I did something. Well, two years later, nothing had changed because I wasn't willing to develop self-control when it came to what I eat. And since I wasn't interested in developing self-control at the pantry, I decided to take up running to give myself the luxury of eating whatever I wanted. Well, surprise, surprise, as I grew in self-control in one area, it had benefits across my life in just greater self-control. I didn't eat so much or so badly in the evening because I didn't want to undo all that hard work that I'd done in the afternoon. But it went beyond just 
physical benefits. The body and the soul are united for this time being. And so what affects the body can affect the soul, too. And I actually had spiritual benefits that I did not see coming from exercising. I was less crabby and impatient. Something about the exercise and the running just improved my disposition. And when I get out of the habit of running, I can see that start to slip. And when I was alone with the computer, I had much greater resilience to temptation when I've been running. Did not know that that was going to happen. And it also forced me to improve my time management. If I was going to be setting aside time for regular exercise, I needed to be able to structure my time better and still get everything done. Uh, And so it'll be different for you, of course. I'm not saying you all need to go out and buy running shoes. But there will be something like that in your life that it will be some way for you to recognize that there's habits that improve your spiritual life. And so latch on to that and pursue that and, and do that. It serves as a good line of protection in my life. But guess what? None of that is uniquely or particularly Christian. Anybody can benefit from good habits, good exercise, fences and hedges and protection in their life. And they do. Non-Christians can do a great job of containing and managing their sin. But it's only by the Spirit of God that we will be able to put sin to death. Over the long term, your three greatest weapons against sin aren't flashy and glamorous, and they don't show up in action movies. Your greatest weapons over the course of a lifetime are starvation, strangulation, and suffocation. You yourself, but that's what you do to your sin. Paul slipped one more verse into Romans over in the 13th chapter, the 14th verse. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. When you go on a long car trip with your family, you make provision. You make sure you have access to food and water, gasoline, cash, restrooms, all along your journey. You plan it out. You make provision. You pack a cooler. You fill the tank. You put a sleeping pill in the juice box and maybe in Pepsi Max of the passenger. You make provision and off you go on the road. Don't do that with sin. Don't feed it. Don't allow it to take root in your life. Starve it for food and starve it for oxygen. Your sin thrives when you think on it, dwell on it, practice it, harvest it, and don't let sin grow in your life. You can squash it out. And I'm not saying, oh, uh, whenever you're um, tempted, you just snap a rubber band on your wrist and think about Jesus. It's just, you know, the power of healthy distraction. If you're in a room where there is temptation, then leave the room. If you're facing trouble on your computer, then go and do something else for a while. Uh, a guy I was talking with a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the frustration that we have with small children sometimes, hence the sleeping pill. And, uh, the, and, and it just seems so simplistic, but the benefits of counting to 10 and taking a deep breath and putting a smile on your face can really take the, the edge off of the anger and the frustration when you're feeling it. Don't give your sin the energy and nutrition and oxygen that it needs to thrive in your life. But it's not enough to simply focus on uh, stifling your sin. You also have to uh, put something in its place. Make sure there are other things growing in your soul. We're all human. There's a limited acreage in the garden of our soul. And if you sow to the spirit and cultivate the habits of God and the practices of God in your life, it will stifle and strangle the health out of your sin. 
But if you sow to your sin and feed it and nurture it and water it, then it will... I see somebody waving. Can you still hear me? You're just stretching. Okay. You can still hear me. When you sow to your sin, then you will be withering the work of God in your life. Starvation and strangulation and suffocation take time. They're not quick fixes, and you will not see them used heroically in the cinema this summer, but they are effective over the course of a lifetime. Last illustration. God gave us marriage as a metaphor to understand the Christian life. And what's the best way to protect your marriage against infidelity and unfaithfulness and impurity? Not just by staying out of dangerous situations. It's, it's not enough to recognize that the Internet and Fifty Shades of Grey are not going to lead you into a greater life of purity. You also have to not just forsake the bad, but also pursue the good. Spend time, spend effort, spend money as available on cultivating your marriage, and that will generally make outside temptations less alluring. Neglect your marriage and allow it to languish and avoid it, then all of a sudden the grass is greener on the other side. The point isn't about marriage. Marriage is the illustration. The point is about our spiritual life. If we uh, want to be stifling sin and putting sin to death, then we have to be cultivating our relationship with God, actively pursuing our walk with Christ. Put sin to death by cultivating your love for Jesus, by putting your resources in that direction, your time, your money, and your effort. We are going to uh, celebrate communion this morning. So many of these scriptures that we've talked about talk about setting your eyes on Jesus, setting your eyes, setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, turning your eyes on Jesus. If uh, that is the how of putting sin to death, seek him in the word, seek him in prayer. Spend time with him. Cultivate your relationship with him. If baptism is a picture of the beginning of the Christian life, then communion is a picture of the ongoing nature of the Christian life. It's a picture of sanctification. The bread and the juice help us look back to what Christ did on the cross, and we do it Uh, do this in remembrance of me and do this until I come. We look forward to the time when we can celebrate with Christ in person. But in the meantime, it's a reminder that we do this every time we gather for worship because we have an ongoing need for Jesus. We need to be continually, not just once in a while, but regularly feeding on him, spending time in his word, cultivating the things of God in our life. And that will be enabling us and allowing us to put sin to death. As we feed and water and nurture the life that we have in Christ, we will be putting to death sin in our soul. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you've given us in your word, uh, not just about how you have done a work that has reconciled us to the Father and made it possible for us to be on friendly terms with God, but also that you have given us power to continually grow more and more like you and less and less like the sinful people that we were when we came to you. Thank you that there is hope, not just for eternity, but hope in this life for growing in you. Thank you that the sinful habits that dog us still can be behind us someday through the power of your grace enabling and motivating us to grow in the word and grow in fellowship with other believers and grow in fellowship with you 
so that sin becomes less and less tempting, less and less desirable, less and less attractive, because we have a greater and deeper and more pure love for you. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen. The servers are going to come, and they're going to give you the bread and the juice. After this song, there's going to be a time of reflection for you to pray and talk to God. If you are a believer, then you are welcome to take communion with us. If you're not a believer, I'd be happy to talk to you about what that means.